Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast series on influenza. This third and final of three podcasts will answer your frequently asked questions about updates to influenza management in 2020 and beyond. We welcome Dr. Daniel Solomon, Associate Physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Instructor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. The learning objectives of this podcast are to 1. Describe recommendations for the management of patients with suspected or confirmed influenza and those at high risk for complications. 2. Select appropriate antiviral medications for the treatment of influenza. And 3. Answer commonly asked questions around influenza management. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Hi, my name is Daniel Solomon, and I'm an infectious disease physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. This is the third podcast in a series on influenza. The first episode was on flu epidemiology and testing. The second was on management and prophylaxis. In today's episode, we're going to focus on answering your questions about the flu. So these are questions that have been submitted by listeners, and we're going to break the questions down into four different segments. Vaccination, presentation in the era of COVID, treatment, and prophylaxis. I'll try to get to as many questions as possible during the course of the podcast. So let's start out with some questions on vaccination. The first question is, can you give the flu vaccine on the same day as starting antivirals for prophylaxis? And the answer is yes. So for patients who are asymptomatic, who are presenting for prophylaxis because they have a known exposure, it is very safe to give the flu vaccine on that day. The important point here, though, is that the flu vaccine will not be effective in preventing influenza from the recent exposure. It takes about two weeks for the body to mount a full antibody response, so it should not take the place of antivirals for prophylaxis. But it is a good opportunity to get someone vaccinated to prevent them from getting the flu later in the season. Another question that I get about this is if someone has already had the flu in one season, should they still get the flu vaccine? And my answer to that is also yes. There are several different strains of the flu, as you probably know, and having infection with one strain does not confer immunity to all of the other strains. So once the patient has recovered from their acute infection, it does make sense to give them the the vaccine to prevent the other strains of infection. The next question we received was, should cancer patients or patients on biologics receive the flu vaccine? And the answer to this is is a strong yes. So it is enormously important for patients who are immunocompromised to get the flu vaccine, maybe even more important than immunocompetent patients. They are eligible to receive any of the inactivated vaccines. So the one vaccine we should avoid is the live attenuated vaccine. That's the intranasal vaccine. Um, But patients who are immunocompromised definitely should, can and should get the flu vaccine. And then the third question about vaccinations is, what are the different vaccines available and which one is recommended for whom? So this is a a big question, and um, I'm not going to cover all of the vaccines here. I will outline some of the most common vaccines that we see um, and describe who should get each one. 
So, so the most common vaccine we see is the standard dose inactivated influenza vaccine. This is a quadrivalent vaccine that is approved for anyone older than six months. This is a safe and effective vaccine for anyone um, and is probably the one you'll see most commonly in practice. For anyone older than 65 years old, there's the high-dose vaccine and the adjuvanted vaccine. Both of these vaccines trigger a more robust immune response, and for people whose immune system might be waning a little bit as they age, these are effective vaccines. Um, there's no recommendation from the CDC or the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices about whether we should give older individuals standard dose or high dose, but if you have the high dose available, um, I do recommend giving it in anyone older than 65. I already commented on the live attenuated vaccine. This is the intranasal vaccine. It's, uh, the nice thing about this is that you don't need an injection. It's approved for anyone between two years old and 49 years old um, and should not be given to anyone who's immunocompromised or is on any immunosuppressing medications. And finally, um, there is the recombinant vaccine and the cell culture vaccine. These vaccines are egg-free, um, so if there's anyone who's really worried about a reg an egg allergy and is not willing to, to have an observed standard dose vaccine, which is totally a, a reasonable path, you can give the recombinant or cell culture vaccine. Okay, I'm going to switch gears now and talk about presentation of influenza and testing in the era of COVID. So the key question here is how does COVID change your approach to testing for influenza? And there are a couple points that I'm going to make in order to answer this question. The first is that influenza and COVID cannot be distinguished on clinical criteria alone. They both present with nonspecific symptoms of a respiratory viral illness, fever, chills, myalgias, cough, shortness of breath, and no individual symptom can make that differentiation. So we need a diagnostic test in order to tell the difference. The other second point that I want to make is that we have seen cases of co-infection with COVID and influenza. So having a positive test for one does not preclude the possibility that the patient is infected with both. It's not super common, but it is possible. So how will our approach to testing um, change this year? I think it's going to depend a lot on what tests are available, um, both sort of nationally and locally, what tests you have access to. For anyone presenting with symptoms of a respiratory viral illness, it will be most important to test for COVID for infection control purposes. Um, and so one might consider an algorithm of having a COVID test first, and then if that is negative, um, reflexing to an influenza test. This might not catch patients with co-infection, but at least it would be an algorithm to test patients for COVID and give them proper guidance around quarantine and isolation if needed, as well as contact tracing. Um, influenza testing, you know, we use this when it's really going to change clinical management. So for patients who are admitted to the hospital with these symptoms, they're going to receive both a COVID test and a flu test. And for anyone um, who would be considered a candidate for treatment, which we'll talk about in a moment, a positive influenza test will actually change management. It would uh, allow us to give antiviral therapy. So that's the key question that I would ask when we're thinking about your patients. Would a positive test actually change our management? And if so, um, we should be testing for influenza as well, just as we did in previous years.
So let's turn our attention to treatment. The first question we received here is, which drug most rapidly treats influenza? Um, so the answer to this um, is, uh, it's sort of interesting. So we have two main tr uh, treatment options for influenza. We have oseltamivir, that's Tamiflu, that's the one we have most experience with. And we have Biloxivir Marboxyl, this one's a little bit newer. When those two medications are compared head-to-head, -head, the efficacy outcomes are essentially the same. Both decrease the duration of symptoms by about one day, and both have a significant decrease in secondary complications, such as a second infection. Which one uh, treats the, the infection more rapidly? Well, in terms of symptoms, they're about equal. But if you actually look at the viral load, baloxavir marboxyl, baloxavir, is the one that actually decreases the viral load more quickly. What does this mean? Well, in other infections, like HIV, for example, the viral load is a good indicator of how infectious an individual is. So it would be really interesting if we saw with baloxavir if that decrease in viral load actually led to a, a shorter period of infectivity, of risk to others. But that data is not there yet. All we know now is that the viral load goes down more quickly. We actually don't know if that confers a lower risk of transmitting the disease. I think that's a good segue into the second question, which is, do you reduce influenza infectivity by treating with antivirals? And the data on this is still out. For oseltamivir, the answer um, ha has not been definitively answered. As I said before, we know that it decreases the duration of symptoms, but it's never been shown that it decreases the duration of infectivity. Baloxavir holds promise for this, right? I said that the viral load declines more quickly, but we do not have any clinical data to show that patients are less likely to transmit the virus after they've been given baloxavir. So this is something to keep our eye on as we have more experience with baloxavir, and I think it would be a really compelling reason to, to use that medication more commonly if we did decrease the infectivity, but right now we don't have data to support that. The next question is, is there concern for resistance to antivirals developing if there is a high volume of prescribing? So we have a lot of data to lean on with oseltamivir here. Um, resistance to oseltamivir varies year to year, um, but it's usually very, very low. We did see some emergent resistance back in 2009 with the H1N1 pandemic. But in general, the rates of resistance are really low, even though we prescribe oseltamivir very commonly. In the studies of baloxavir, it shows that resistance actually emerges more quickly. What is the clinical implication of this? We actually don't know because we don't have a ton of experience with baloxavir, but as we use it more commonly, this will be an important, um, important factor to keep our eye on. As I said, you know, the efficacy head-to-head -head looks very similar between baloxavir and oseltamivir. But if there is development of resistance, rapid development of resistance, either in one season or year to year, that would overall decrease the utility of baloxavir in the long term. So this is something to, to pay close attention to. The next question is, would you ever treat with both oseltamivir and baloxavir? Um, and 
The answer to that is um, it's a great question, and it's something that is currently under investigation, especially for patients with severe influenza disease. So these are patients who are hospitalized, oftentimes critically ill. There's an ongoing clinical trial of using both oseltamivir and baloxivir simultaneously. What is the idea behind this? So there are different mechanisms of action for each of those antivirals. Oseltamivir is a neuraminidase inhibitor. Baloxivir is a cap-dependent endonuclease inhibitor. The details of that doesn't ma don't matter, but if they're acting on different pathways, would the combination actually be better? The answer is we don't know, but we're looking at that in severely ill populations. And I know anecdotally from my practice in the hospital that people are, are doing that for patients who are critically ill from time to time. There are some case reports of this being used, um, but uh, you know, big, big studies that give us some outcome data are, are lacking at this point, and I'm really interested to see the result. I think a, a related question is for people who develop resistance to oseltamivir, which is pretty uncommon, is baloxivir a good treatment option? Um, and the answer is we don't know. Presumably because they have different mechanisms of action, baloxivir should still be active. But again, that's a question that, um, that is yet to be answered. The last question related to treatment is, can you treat high-risk patients with antivirals even after that 48-hour window after symptoms started? And is there a cutoff point where you would no longer treat with antivirals? The answer to this is yes. So um, I think the, the question is, is a good one. We know that antivirals are most effective when they are, when they are started as close to symptom onset as possible. And in patients who are not high risk, we recommend aiming for that first 48-hour um, period after symptoms start. For patients who are high risk for developing sequela or secondary complications of influenza, so these are patients at the bookends of the age spectrum, patients who are immunocompromised or who have some underlying comorbidity that puts them at higher risk, we would recommend treating patients who are outside that 48-hour window. So is there a cutoff where we would no longer treat? Um, I don't use a specific day or hour cutoff. I don't say, hey, it's five days, so, so no. For patients who are severely ill in the hospital, we say, you know, if there's, a, there's an opportunity to treat the virus that could be effective, we treat. Um, I would say if, if patients who are high risk are already getting better and their symptoms are improving and it's been four or five days, I don't initiate antivirals at that point to prevent secondary complications if they're showing clear improvement on the, and they're on the path to recovery, but there's no specific strict criteria that I use. Again, earlier, of course, is better, um, but in patients who are high risk, if they're still symptomatic, I say, hey, it, it's very low risk to use these medications, um, especially if they're able to prevent secondary complications. Okay, let's transition into the, the last segment, which is going to be on prophylaxis. And the first question we received here is, is baloxivir approved for influenza prophylaxis? The answer is no, it's not approved yet. The only medication we have for um, prophylaxis that's been approved by the FDA is oseltamivir. And um, just as I, as I said that, there actually is a second medication called Zenamivir. It's also a neuraminidase inhibitor, which, uh, which is approved, but we don't use that in practice nearly as much. Um, and, and I've actually never used it in practice. There's this, um, this really bad complication of 
bronchospasm in people who have underlying reactive airway disease. So I, I, although it is approved, I don't use that in practice. So in practice, we're really using oseltamivir um, for um, individuals for prophylaxis. Biloxivir, um, there was a recent study that showed biloxivir reduced the likelihood of developing a flu after an exposure by 86%. So that's actually very effective, and it is um, being reviewed by the FDA right now um, for approval for this indication. So it's not approved yet, but based on this data, I suspect it will be approved and we'll have two different options for prophylaxis. You know, the nice thing about biloxivir, um, same as for treatment, the prophylactic dosing would be a single dose. So, hey, I had an exposure, I take a single dose of the medication, and I'm done. Whereas oseltamivir is a medication that you take daily for seven days. So once it is approved, I imagine that would be, uh, you know, preferred by many patients. The second um, question in this, in this segment um, is can you prescribe antiviral prophylaxis more than once in a season? Um, and the answer is yes, absolutely. There are patients, individuals who have repeated exposures um, just by chance or by nature of the work that they do or um, specific exposures they may have. And if someone is a candidate for prophylaxis in December or January when they had their first exposure, they complete their course of prophylaxis, and they have another exposure in March, absolutely they are eligible for another course of prophylaxis. So that brings us to the end of the, the FAQ episode of influenza here. Um, hopefully this answered some of your burning questions about influenza. Um, if you are interested in this topic and you want to get a refresher for the flu season, be sure to check out episode one and episode two in this series, um, uh, which is more of a review, as I said, of epidemiology, testing, management, and prophylaxis. Um, and good luck managing respiratory virus this upcoming season. I think it's going to pose a challenge, um, and uh, being prepared is always going to be helpful. Take care. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.